Happy Memorial Day, West Ridge. <laughs> you know, it thrills me if, if just two or three people are awake during this, during the message. So just two or three is all I'm after. So from the ages of about 6 to 13, I was taken to Sunday school uh, every Sunday morning, sometimes kicking and screaming. And by the time the teacher took the role and she started teaching, we had a grand total of about 30 minutes of teaching time. That's two hours a month, 24 hours a year. Little wonder I never had any friendships in the church And that church had very little, if any, influence over me. Later in my teen years, after a few bad experiences with an exceptionally bad youth group, I concluded, I may love Jesus, but I sure don't like the church, or this group, or their cheesy culture. No friends, no influence. No quality time, no behavioral behavioral change, no community. And about that time that I was forming these unflattering opinions about church, the Beatles release Eleanor Rigby in 1966. Eleanor Rigby picked up the rice in a church where a wedding had been. Lives in a dream. All the lonely people... Where do they come from? By then, I'd consider myself Eleanor Rigby. Turns out, the song was prophetic. Today, we're living in an isolation that would have been unimaginable to our ancestors. And yet, as you know, we're more accessible Over the past three decades, technology has delivered to us a world in which we need not be out of contact for a fraction of a moment. Some of you are in contact with someone around this country, even as I speak, undoubtedly. And yet, we suffer unprecedented alienation. We've never been more detached from one another. We've never been lonelier. It's an accelerating contradiction. We're more connected and we're more lonely. We were promised a global village. Instead, we inhabit the endless freeways of a vast suburb of information. Today, we meet fewer people, we gather less, and when we gather, our bonds are less meaningful, less easy. Medical research today has shown that loneliness affects not only the brain, but the basic process of DNA transcription, which means this. When we're lonely, your whole body is lonely. I find the early church struggled with some of the same issues. They were far from perfect, but they struggled with the cultural, ethnic, personal differences that we struggle with. And yet they were moving towards something no human organization could offer. A common oneness, a sense of authentic community, the kind of stuff that we all want and we all need. Acts 2 encapsulates that community this way. Everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles and all the believers lived in wonderful harmony 
holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned. They pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw. And every day their number grew as God added to those who were saved. Why is it that so few churches today experience that kind of community? I don't know if you're like me, but take a look around. All the lonely people. Where do they all come from? Where do they all belong? Let me offer you one reason why community eludes us. And it may not be the reason that you would think. And it's this. The spirit of individualism that comes from dominant culture. The biblical worldview is that there is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. There is the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And they wage war against each other. And the dominant culture, the kingdom of this world, makes false promises to you and I. It lies to us. It sets up expectations that seem great, but when we reach out to grab them, they're vaporous. They're cotton candy. They aren't there. Instead of the spirit of unity that comes from the kingdom of God, which often means that we have to make a choice. And we have to see clearly the difference between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. When we choose dominant culture, the kingdom of this, of this world, we end up with cultural conformity but not Christian unity. Cultural conformity means we like people because they're like us. They look like us, eat like us, smell like us, dress like us. But when culture shifts... If your faith is based on culture, when culture shifts, your faith shifts or gets lost. In his book, Democracy in America, Alexis de Tocqueville described in 1935 what he thought made America strong. The one characteristic that impressed him most was our individualism. What de Tocqueville admired this trait, while he admired it, he warned that unless balanced by other habits, it would lead to the fragmentation of American society. And today, the one common trait of dominant culture is the celebration of self that breaks away from the constrictions of family and community and in its greatest expression breaks away from all limits entirely. The great American novel is Melville's Moby Dick, the tale of a man on a quest so lonely that it's incomprehensible to those around him. American culture, high and low, is about self-expression. It's about personal authenticity. Fast forward to 1985. Robert Bella and his colleagues write the book, Habits of the Heart, in which they argue that our civilization has not remained balanced that the Tocqueville's direst prediction has come true, that isolation and fragmentation have become the order of the day. Habits of the Heart attempts to document a value system they call utilitarian individualism. The two ruling principles for America today, they say, are the dream of personal success and vivid personal feeling. Time and again, they heard in their interview... 
Marriage is an opportunity for personal development. What can I get out of it? Church is a means for personal fulfillment. Why aren't they meeting my needs? All of which raises the rather practical question. If this spirit of individualism permeates those inside the church as well as those outside the church, and if this spirit means ultimately that I have as my primary agenda item getting things my way, and if you have as your primary agenda item getting things your way, who gets their way? Who wins in a zero-sum game? Now it's the year 2000, and Harvard professor Robert Putnam writes the classic Bowling Alone, in which he highlights several culprits of loneliness that disintegrate community. Spending too many hours a week commuting. Spending countless hours in front of the TV. The self-absorption of the baby boomers. That's me. The disintegration of traditional family. He concludes, we're lonely because we want to be lonely. And he wrote his book before the rise of social media and spending countless hours on Facebook and Twitter. Now, allow me to move from the academic to the practical. Let's ask the question in terms of a biological family, shall we? Let's say you have a baby in the house. And by virtue of being a baby, you know that at some point during the day or night, he's going to be crying. He's going to be hungry. And guess what? He's going to be wet. Or worse. And guess what else? He wants his way. Now, you're sleepy. And you have to get up in a few hours. And you have to go to work. And guess what? You want your way. Now the question is, who wins? Who gets their way? And the answer, of course, is the weaker member. The one who is otherwise not able to provide for themselves, right? Now keep that picture in your head. But let's fast forward 16 years. It's that same baby. But no longer a baby. A 17-year-old. Now... And this is nothing against any of you who are 17 in this room. Now this 17-year-old is pouting and demanding to take the car out for an evening with friends. Even though another family member has to use it to go to work. Now, who wins? Well, I can tell you who'd better win. Why? Because now this little infant is not quite so helpless. And those in authority from time to time have to say no because it's in his best interest not to get his way all the time if he ever hopes to grow up. And growing up is the goal. Now let's jump back to our church community. Who gets their way when there are differences about the way things are done in church? The ones who have been in church all their life. The ones who give the most money. That's the way it works in some businesses. How about the ones who can shout the loudest? 
or the ones who can gossip the most? What does the Bible say? I always say, when all else fails, read the directions. And here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 9, 12. It's written, just in this context of creating authentic community, a la the kingdom of God, not dominant culture, it says this, our decision all along has been to put up with anything rather than get in the way or detract from the message of Christ. It's just like it is in the biological family. The mature put up with anything rather than detract from the gospel. And when you have a situation in the church where let's say someone is not quite a believer, maybe they've rarely been to church, maybe they're new to this Jesus thing, and they're a little bit fearful or frightened, that may be you this morning. The more mature and stronger family members are the one who change for them. It's almost backwards from the way the world thinks. Dominant culture, the kingdom of this world says, the more tenure you have, the more power you have, the more influence you have, the more others should change for you. That's social Darwinism, not Christianity. The church Jesus founded says, uh-uh. The greater the authority, the greater the servant. How about the spiritual adolescent who wants to pull a power play and dominate resources because they've been in the church long enough to have some juice? Well, at times the more mature have to say no out of concern for their best interest because growing up is the goal. It was in this context that the Apostle Paul writes to Titus. He says, For there are a lot of rebels out there full of loose, confusing, and deceiving talk. Those who were brought up religious and ought to know better, they're the worst. That's it. Those who could know better should know better. Sometimes they have to be lovingly told, you can't have the car tonight. The church has too oftentimes focused on the wrong enemy. The enemy of caring community that ends loneliness. The enemy doesn't come from the outside. Outside forces draw us closer. The real enemy of community comes from the inside. Those who could know better should know better, but are still self-righteously clinging to their own rights, who are being informed by dominant culture, the culture of this world that lies to us, that offers false expectations. The example of Christ could not be clear. Philippians chapter 2 was written about caring community, and it says this, don't push your way up to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside. Help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. C.S. Lewis says, the perfect church service would be the one we were almost unaware of because our attention would have been on God. Now, here are a few practical steps towards the kind of caring community that we all want. They are the three T's of relationship building. They're not new, but they haven't changed in the age of social media. And the first is time. In our culture, 
this is perhaps the most difficult price to pay. You can't microwave a friendship. A person can pretend to care, but they can't pretend to be there. And when you read the Bible, the early church in the book of Acts is merely practicing what they'd seen Jesus do. Jesus went to parties. Jesus sang songs with people. He told stories. He made them picnics on the shore. He held children in His arms. He enjoyed watching their faces as one loaf of bread turned into 3,000. Bonding occurs when our defenses are down and nowhere are people more open to love than when they are eating and playing together. Turns out, playing is serious business. Second T is talk. Obviously, it does very, very little good to be together if there's no communication going on. And today, reams of research show that it's the quality, not just the quantity, of social interaction that predicts loneliness. And there will be very little real communication unless real listening goes on. Listening in a non-judgmental manner. It's hard work. It requires concentration. It involves eye contact, body language. What's the first thing a couple says when the relationship is growing cold? We don't talk like we used to. And the final T is trust. A 2004 study showed that 25% of Americans, that's one in every four of you, say they have no personal confidant. No one, zero, with whom they can talk and have an important, confidential, meaningful conversation. Time and talk build trust. There's no other way. And trust is the glue that holds relationships together when times are hard. That's real community. We can disagree. We can argue. We can even go our separate ways for a time if trust is there. Yvette Vickers, she died with her computer on. You may not remember her. Um, I do because she was a former Playboy playmate. And, <laughs> and this is why I remember her. <laughs> Smarty pants. B movie actress. Best known. <laughs> Skeptics in the audience. Best known for her role in The Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. One of my faves. She would have been 83 last August. But nobody knows how old she was when she died. According to the L.A. Coroner's report, she lay dead for the better part of a year before a neighbor and fellow actress noticed cobwebs and yellowing letters in her mailbox. She then reached through a broken window to unlock the door, pushed her way past the piles of junk mail, mounds of clothing. Upstairs, she found Vickers' body near a heater still running. Her computer was on, too, its glow permeating the empty space. The story went viral. 
Vickers' death was the subject of over 16,000 Facebook posts and almost 900 tweets, none of them, I guarantee you, mine. Miss Vickers, who had long been an icon of bad horror films, had now become an icon of a real horror story. The 21st century American fear of loneliness. With no children, no church family, no immediate social circle of any kind, she had begun as an elderly woman to look for companionship elsewhere. In the months before her grotesque death, phone records indicated she'd made calls not to family or friends, but to distant fans who had found her through fan conventions and internet sites. Her web of connections had grown broader but shallower. What social media has taught us, if it's taught us anything, at least, is this. A connection is not a confidant. And an internet friend can be a fantasy. Yvette Vickers' computer was on when she died. Digital intimacies may be the ties that preoccupy, but they are not the ties that bind. Only a live relationship with Jesus and His expression here on this earth, the church, can satisfy our deepest longings and provide genuine community. Eleanor Rigby. She died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came. If you want to swim upstream against dominant culture, the kingdom of this world, toward authentic community, Christian unity, the kingdom of God, pray this prayer with me. Lord, I long to be a part of a caring church family. But often... I'm not sensitive to what people are really saying. Please teach me to listen with your ears of compassion. Lord, help me respond with a heart that cares the way you do.